Hello everyone and welcome to Golden Walk Magazine. My name is David Walker, one of the editors bringing you the issue for May 2018. And this one is a bit different than what we've done in the past because I am basically combining our dialogue starter issue with our main issue of the month. So what we're going to hear is the dialogue starter, the piece of music that people can respond to. They will have until the end of June to write something new and submit it to us and hopefully uh, be chosen for publication. And then we will go straight into the the work that we're going to feature this month, which is nonfiction craft essay type stuff. Okay, so let's get straight into this. This is going to be a packed issue. Hope you enjoy it. So the piece of music this time around for our dialogue submissions is something I'm so excited for because it is different than any music that we've had in the past, which is something I think has been a staple of our dialogue submissions. All the music has been so different from each other. So we're been, we've been getting a lot of different types of stuff submitted to us. Um, and if you are interested in submitting once you hear this music, uh, go to our website, goldwalkmag.com, and learn how to submit um, under dialogue submissions. So this piece of music is using an Mbira, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, Mbira instrument, which is a traditional African instrument. Um, and the piece is an original composition by Joyce Jagia, and uh, it, it's titled Rain Tale. So I really hope you enjoy this. I hope it inspires some new writing for you um, and that you will submit to us. So here we go, Rain Tale by Joyce Chagia. Thank you. 
All right, so again, if you are interested in submitting, go to our website, learn how to do that. Really hope you enjoyed the music. Now we're going to move into the work, the written work that we have featured in this issue this month. And we're going to start off with a wonderful nonfiction essay by Eric Wilson Edge titled Christmas. And the reason why we were drawn to this this particular essay was we almost couldn't believe that it was real life, uh, that it was nonfiction. We had to keep checking the genre of the of the submission and making sure that it was actually nonfiction. And so um, it, it's, a, it's a story about this larger than life grandfather um, and the legacy that is that is left behind uh, by this grandfather and it's it sounds like something that is that is straight out of fiction um, and I guess because it is nonfiction it just adds that extra um, pardon the pun adds that extra edge to it um, I'm sorry I, I couldn't help it all right so anyway Let's get straight into it. This is Christmas by Eric Wilson Edge. My name is Eric Wilson Edge, and the story I'll be reading is called Christmas. My grandfather hands me a black and white photo of a dead man. The man is limp against a blood-splattered wall. Red and green Christmas lights twinkle on the photo's glossy surface. Nat King Cole's buttery vocals croon softly in the background. My grandfather is wearing a Frosty the Snowman sweater, brown slacks, and loafers. He has a large bald spot with tufts of gray at the edges, deep wrinkles under his eyes, and liver spots on his hands. Roy Leopard is family lore, the spy who survived being shot multiple times, and who killed tigers for sport. He's lived in exotic locations and slept with an untold number of women. Roy Leopard is pure red meat alpha male. He's also grandpa. I don't know him as a killer or as a grandfather. Being the stuff of legend precludes revealing too much about oneself. It's hard to maintain the myth if people know your real history. The facts of my grandfather are sparse and obvious. I can confirm he married my grandmother, and they had four kids together, including my mother. The rest, stories filled with explosions, near misses, and other acts of cinematic violence, is hearsay. The popular fiction of my family is that Roy worked for the CIA in Vietnam. The man in the picture is Asian, Saigon 68, is scribbled in blue ink on the back. This is all the evidence my grandfather will offer. When pressed on the specifics, he withdraws, says he can't elaborate, then asks if I want some hot chocolate. The details I have about my grandfather come from my mother, who herself admits to knowing very little. Roy's life is a game of telephone. The truth has been stretched into something misshapen and unrecognizable. After 80 plus years of spin, I doubt Roy knows any more what is real and what is fake. Roy was largely an absentee father, too busy doing secret agent stuff to be bogged down in the messy details of being a parent. 
For Roy, it was a lot easier to kill people than it was to raise them. My mom never refers to him as dad or even father. He's Roy, a moniker lacking connection or warmth. He's the third cousin, a vague relation that you only think about once every ten years during a family reunion. It means something that my mother only talks about Roy's grand adventures. There are no stories of family vacations, or the time he climbed through the window dressed as Santa Claus. These intimate moments are buried under layers of hurt, too painful to be recognized, too dangerous to unearth. Least they disturb a narrative or sugarcoat a history that was more bad than good. Then again, maybe they don't exist. The seminal tale of my grandfather, the one my mom returns to time and again, involves a live-in chef. One night, after the family had gone to bed, this chef siphoned sleeping gas into the vents and set about robbing the house. A few months later, my grandfather found the chef and shot him in the middle of a crowded Saigon street. I grew up listening to these stories. They were a stand-in for my actual grandfather, a thing more reliable than the man. You couldn't talk to them or hug them. Then again, you couldn't do those things with my grandfather. I could access these legends any time I wanted. They were imagination fertilizer for a kid already more interested in his inner world than he was with reality. It was cool to have a spy in the family, to have those genetics inside myself. I could be the muscle-bound hero, not the scrawny nerd in need of saving. My grandfather's exploits, sanitized of blood and gore, were action without consequence. No messy backstory, complicated family dynamics, no victims. Until now, until this dead man, this trophy, he could be the fabled chef, the calculating thief of my childhood. He could also be someone else, someone who liked to eat pancakes plain with no butter or syrup. Maybe he owned a dog named Rex and took him for a walk in the same park every day. He could be a first-grade teacher. He could be a lot of things, but there's only one truth for him. He's the villain. Has been since the day Roy sighted his gun and his camera. I'm 18 years old, and this is the first time I've ever seen a dead body. All I know of death I learn from movies and books. Which is to say I know nothing. In my mind... People died fantastic deaths, replete with music, heroic last words, and slow motion. There are no illusions in this picture. The urine-soaked pants suggest either biology or fear, maybe both. Did he die begging for his life? His mouth hangs open as if he were shot mid-sentence. What were his last words? They were probably in Vietnamese a language I'm told my grandfather never learned. I was five the last time I saw my grandfather. Till now, my verifiable memories of him consisted of tobacco pipes and an end table where he kept a stash of toys. There's a simple explanation for his absence from my life. They, my mother, and Roy hated each other.
When asked about what happened, my mother offers generic answers. Roy was never around. He drank. He got real mean when he drank. He thinks he's James Bond. I wanted to hear something specific. For my mom to point to a moment when their crumbling relationship officially collapsed. I'm the reason we're staring at grainy photos of corpses on Christmas. I wanted to know more about Roy and vis-a-vis myself. I also felt an obligation to heal a perceived rift inside my mother. Roy was getting older and wouldn't be around much longer. Wouldn't she feel guilty if he died and they hadn't mended their threadbare relationship? There was still time, if only she reached out. Susan, my grandfather's wife, he divorced my grandmother in the early 1970s, is a polite English woman with impeccable manners. She brings hot chocolate for me and coffee for my mom. Susan makes no mention of the photos. I wonder if this is normal. Is this what happens when Roy has company over? Are the neighbors greeted with a hello, warm beverages, and images of violent death? Or is this perverse gift offered only to family? Susan takes a quiet seat on the piano bench. My grandfather sits down next to her. He lifts up his sweater to reveal a three fifty-seven Magnum tucked into his waistband. This, Roy explains, is his favorite gun. He keeps it on him at all times, even sleeps with it under the pillow. He needs it because he needs it. The neighborhood hasn't been plagued by a rash of break-ins, nor have there been phone calls in the middle of the night, the kind with heavy breathing and no words. The threat is never described, just assumed. The bloody nature of my grandfather's work means constant vigilance. Roy is on the lookout for men like himself, other Roy's, the kind of men who shoot people in broad daylight, then stop to take a picture. I think we're going to leave, that my mom will stand, find her purse, and walk out. Pictures on the wall will rattle from the force of a door being forever slammed shut. The afternoon has been calamitous, but the violence on display felt isolated, stuck within a four-by-six border. The calculus changed when my grandfather set the gun down in his lap, finger tracing the trigger. My mother looks at me and shrugs. Her reaction is automatic, a biological response to a pathogen. My mother's indifference prevents Roy's poison from getting into places that matter that could do even more harm. He will be given no more mental space than which he already occupies. This day, the photos, the gun, are meant to intimidate. Roy wants us to know he's capable, that the rumors are true. Nothing else matters, not family unification, not propriety. Legacy is the only thing that matters to my grandfather. He wants to be legend, a story, not a man who will die. The sad thing is, he fails to see how ridiculous he looks. He's propped up by prescription medication and dust-cake glory. There's nothing new about my grandfather. Hasn't been for a long time. 
while other people his age are sharing photos of their children and grandchildren. Roy is showing off pictures of people he killed in the 1960s. Roy's twisted version of reality fits within his definition of what it means to be a man. Power is the yardstick he uses to measure the worth of himself and others. He's finally up against something he can't intimidate. Time is bringing him down to his elements, and he's scared. The past is where he reigns supreme, and so he lives there as much as possible. Of all the things I wondered about Roy, the thing that didn't make sense, the most improbable part, concerned my mother. Why did she tell me these stories? They are the kind of thing you try to protect your kids from. The reason you use passwords on a computer or go trick-or-treating at the mall. Roy isn't suitable for children. I thought she meant me to be entertained or inspired. The opposite is true. She wanted me to be repulsed, to tell her that I didn't want to hear about that stuff anymore. My mom agreed to do this meeting so that I may see the truth. She wanted me to be nothing like Roy, but doing so meant meeting him in person. Roy did exactly what my mom thought he would do. This was a risky gamble. I could have been enthralled instead of reviled. I can't help but think that she was pitting her worldview against Roy's. Which one had greater pull? I don't know if my mom doubted, but my response was surely a source of pride for her and one more thumb in the eye to Roy. I had turned away from the darker impulses of our shared genetics. It didn't matter if Roy's exploits were real or imagined. His self-centered devotion to the worship of violence did enough damage to those he killed, but mostly to those he wounded. We stayed for dinner, for the turkey and mashed potatoes, the warm rolls and stuffing. She never said it, but my mom needed to get through that day. Leaving early was an acknowledgement. For Roy, hurting his daughter was a sign he still had it, that while the calendar said 1997, it was really always 1968. We didn't hug or shake hands. When the evening ended, Roy and Susan walked us to the door. He'd been drinking steadily, his eyes glossy and his breath loaded. He was one highball and a 357 away from chaos. My mother didn't lie about how good it was to see Roy, nor did she make empty promises to do this again soon. She simply said thank you and walked away. Mom and I didn't talk much on the way home. I sat in the dark, eyes closed, listening to the windshield wipers go back and forth as wet asphalt splashed underneath. We drove through neighborhoods dressed in holiday lights. The greens, reds, and blues illuminated the interior, the broken color freckling the dashboard. My mother placed her hand on mine. She couldn't remember the details of the argument. However, she was clear on how it ended. I called him a coward. I've been working on this piece for a long time. I would type up a draft and save it on my computer and then 
put it away for a while. And when I came back to it and I'd read it, it didn't feel right. So I would come up with a new draft and then another draft. And eventually I just gave up. Uh, I put it away. And then at some point it occurred to me that I was focusing on the wrong things. In those earlier drafts, I was still trying to fill in those gaps of Roy's life. I was still focusing on the fantastic. And then when it finally dawned on me that that's not what the story is about, that the story is about a man who is willing to do anything to maintain an image he's cultivated of himself, once I figured that out, about the damage that does to not only himself, but to others, the story came together pretty quickly. And once I also realized that my mom was trying to teach me something by telling me Roy's stories, once I understood that she wanted me to see Roy for what he really was, and to understand that I have that history within myself, and that I needed to not follow his path, once I understood those separate components, the story came together pretty quickly. However, it took me five years to reach that point. And our final story for this month comes from Trista Hurley Waxali, and it is the craft essay, as she titles it, The Blind Love from Freaky Eaters. And this would be a perfect time to, to just mention to people that we have a new process for, for uh, procuring some uh, surrogate readers, which are the people who basically record when our authors cannot record themselves. So in this instance, me... Uh, David Walker, the editor, had to record this this essay because um, Trista could not do it herself. So to do this, right? To do this, right? We will like we want more voices in here besides just me. Um, so if you are interested in becoming a surrogate reader, you have access to a microphone and you are not shy. Um, please go to our website, go to the thing that says surrogate readers, and there's a little form to fill out for us. And, um, you know, we try to help promote your work. If you're interested, um, in, in doing that, uh, we will include your bio. We will include your website. If you decide to become a surrogate reader for us and, and we will be eternally grateful to, to bringing, uh, for, for you guys to bring this uh, work to life. So anyway, let's talk about The Blind Love from Freaky Eaters, the wonderful essay, craft essay, from Trista Hurley-Waxali. And I was able to get um, deep into this essay because I actually I had to read it um, and, and record it myself. So the wonderful... I think the reason that we were so drawn to it, or I can speak for directly myself. The reason why I was so drawn to it in particular was it talks about the relationship that people have with food and maybe the sometimes unhealthy relationship that people have with food. And I've, I feel like I, I, as someone who has struggled with weight my entire life, I was very, um, I was very connected to this piece. Um, and the sometimes strange sort of habits that we fall into. And, and so I guess it just rang very true to me, um, in this, in this piece. So that's why, that's why we ultimately, uh, accepted it. Cause I think this is something that 
that a lot of people will, if not find themselves in, find someone that they know in. Um, and it's just captured beautifully in this essay. So this is The Blind Love from Freaky Eaters from Trista Hurley Waxali, recited by me. So enjoy more of me. Here we go. The Blind Love from Freaky Eaters by Trista Hurley Waxali. I watch, desperately wanting to be desired like the plain cheeseburger or powdered cornstarch, to feel that same false love flowing through their system from the high fructose brown sauce. For someone to sit in a booth, wanting me for every meal like Italian sausage on marinara pizza. After the first episode, I needed to find what drove these individuals to trust each of these apparently digestible products to fill their hearts with some level of emotional nutrition. At first, it was like observing a one-sided, morbid romance, as a significant portion of the person's daily intake included high levels of sugar or trans fat, which did not appear to deter their routines. When only the thought of holding each can of Coke, anticipating that broken aluminum with the force of their index finger, made the scene as intoxicating as that first sip. It was like a fetish, mixed with a complete disregard for their well-being. I caught myself wanting someone to feel that for me, to feel that unconditional concern like the person who can put tartar sauce on pancakes and call that breakfast. Sure, they were hiding their eating behavior away from loved ones and minimized consumption in a public area, but take nothing from it, they found a parking lot or a driveway somewhere with limited foot traffic as so they could pierce into whatever their craving desired. At some point, I figure it is no longer about the taste, texture, or handle of the object, but the movement from the package to their mouth, something like an emotional totem for the person to know that they exist. The show starts with the person and the item they desire to eat as breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The camera zooms in on their mouth and hands as they hold the item, and then zoom into the throat to remind the viewer, yes, they just ate what you saw. Sometimes the throat would not even close, but almost expand like arteries pumping more blood over lust, for something like a handful of candy. The person being featured will explain that they always go to the same place for the same item, like a heroin addict to their dealer, and purchase the quantity needed to get them through each meal. The person will remind the audience that they can only eat the one item, and they appear as if they are unable to eat anything else without having a panic attack. The illusion is so strong that to them, the only thing that seems wrong is the person who called into the show and said they're worried about their friend. This is the time of every episode where the two hosts strut in with their healthy confidence the people gorging day after day seek out. The two introduce themselves almost like an intervention by revealing who they are and explaining that this toxic relationship with food can no longer continue. The hosts then lead the person to a display they have set up outside, the amount of the product that the person consumed in a year. This is when the person who is being featured is so horrified that they want help. The ones who resist and want to hold on to their lover, instead, are forced by the host to confront and dispose of their desired item. For example, pouring out gallon jars of syrup into the garbage. This scene ends with a person and the viewer hoping to arrive on the same page that this once blossoming romance that brought happiness has now turned into a destructive love affair. When you've binged to your fifth episode, you start to see a pattern with the types of food. 
The person's obsessions are oftentimes an item that's mass-produced and cheap. Also, it seems instead of alcohol, which has a stigma of being out of control, the person convinces themselves that if a child can purchase a harmless product at a store, then it can't bring them any harm. They build this alternate reality, and they can't see that the volume of their consumption of these toxins is impacting their ability to make a sound decision. So after about a decade, the person has become caught in a psychological feedback loop that they cannot break. If you look beyond the item and into the person's routine, you begin to see their economic situation. The people often appear to live in an area with limited availability for healthier options. This is depicted when the camera unintentionally reveals the neighboring items on the shelf. As I am between homes at the moment, I'm keen on the kinds of grocery options and have to better plan my grocery routine. Where some places might be walking distance to healthier options and others a few subway stops away. And if I had the clouded mind like these people have, heading into a local fast food stop for a warm meal is a decent option. The show also depicts a level of superiority with the expectation that everyone can make the same adjustments, such as driving their vehicle a few miles. This is not true, and to combat this perception, the host should be creating dishes with what the person can find in their local grocery store. It's like expecting an alcoholic to simply try smoothies instead, where $2 for an ounce of vodka to a $7 fix is not going to be a valid option. This part of the show really needs to be more aware of the person's access to food. Yet the worst part of the show is the limited time they allocate into discovering the psychological development of this obsession. For a moment, the viewer is able to see and guess as to when the person's brain started to cope through their taste buds. A couple grainy Polaroid pictures are used when the person's speaking about the time they remember they started to exclusively eat that item. Sadly, the revelation is such a brief part of the show since the clickbait comes from the shock and awe of the person's daily self-destruction, not the causation. The show does start by using the real emotions people have. Wanting to be loved and that if not properly measured, it can quickly shift into a toxic obsession. Anyone can start to build a routine using a mix of coping and isolation to maintain an unhealthy lifestyle. Then the only voice the person starts to hear is the cashiers when they're ringing out their item for the hundredth time that month. Maybe the person hears the phrase, hope you have a good day, before carrying their fix away. Overall, the fear tactics on display by the show reminds the viewer how close we all are to being these people, and if you don't call attention to a little habit, it can morph into a real problem. Moderation becomes a lesson for food and for love, where any kind of overindulgence will then spoil your palate. Alright, so that will do it for our issue from May again. Our dialogue submissions are now open until June. So you can actually go straight back onto the, the website, go to dialogue submissions, and you will actually hear the music straight from there if you want to. Or you can go back and listen to this wonderful issue again and listen to the music there and you know write something new. Send it our way. Um, I really want to thank the contributors who, who are featured in this issue. Without you, the issues would not really happen again. So as always, thank you contributors. Thank you to Joey Gould, the other editor, who definitely pushes me to uh, continue on with this magazine and helps in various ways that I cannot even begin to articulate. Um, 
If you would like to become a contributor yourself, please go to our website, goldwalkmag.com, and find out how to do just that. Right now, we have dialogue submissions open. We also have our second annual audio chapbook contest open. Um, so what this is, is you will submit a chapbook to us. Uh, we will read it. We will send it on to our judge. If we, uh, if the judge selects your, your chapbook, then we will turn it into an audiobook uh, only because we are committed to audio presentation of art. As you could tell, we are, we are obsessed with it in a way. So that's that. So uh, the, there is a $10 submission fee, but that basically goes into a growing pot for the winner. So the more submissions we receive, the higher the prize will be. So, um, you know, consider submitting, consider uh, sending this to anyone you think might be interested. Uh, we really want to make this one great. And we have the first winner, um, the Lunatics Left Hand Man by Elliot Khalil Wilson. That's going to be coming out shortly, within the next couple of months. So progress has been made there. You can listen to a preview of that on our website, goldwalkmag.com. And, uh, you know, in general, more any anything that you want to, to send our way uh, to, to sort of help us create a better magazine, better experience, let us know. I think that's all I got for you. So I hope you enjoyed this issue, and I hope to hear from you soon.